So there's this uh, phrase. I, I don't know if you've ever had. Have you ever been with someone in a restaurant and said to them, I can't take you anywhere? Hands up if you've ever said that. Okay. Usually it's something to do with they knock something over and make a mess or they spill something on their top and I see, I see fingers pointing. Okay. This is, this is, Kai, this is a safe place. Okay. You aren't, you, you aren't supposed to be pointing at your brother. And then I'm not supposed to mention that I saw this online, but, uh, and anyway, everyone knows that it's Noah. Okay. Good. All right. So, so we all have those moments where, where we say, I can't take you anywhere. Uh, well, I want to share with you a couple of full-on legit I can't take you anywhere stories that I read on the internet this week. This is the first one. Uh, it says this, um, our, our family was dining out for Mother's Day. My mum, my aunt, uncle and grandparents, my elderly uncle ordered, ordered some beef and he decided to take his false teeth out to eat it. You can see where this is going. Uh, we ate our lunch and left. Later that day, the restaurant calls my mum to say that they found a set of false teeth at the table. My mum had to go back to collect them for my uncle. Considering how embarrassed she was, she tried to subtly ask for them, but the staff just shouted in the back, she's here for the teeth. <laughs> so, Now, if you thought that was bad, listen to Melissa's story. Uh, she says this, I was with my boyfriend at a restaurant celebrating a special occasion and she bought me these above knee boots that I had been wanting forever. We were in DC and it was snowing outside so when we went into the restaurant our coats were taken and we were led to our table. Now let me tell you, okay this is Melissa, this isn't me, okay I'm just reading the story to you. Now let me tell you I was working those boots. At least I thought I was. I was making the aisle my runway when all of a sudden I fell. <laughs> but I didn't just fall, I grabbed a random couple's table and I pulled down all of their food by their linens. But I didn't just pull down their linens, I somehow pulled down the food on the table next to them. And I wasn't actually done. I accidentally fell on a server who fell on a patron who knocked over their very red drink on a very light sweater. The patrons were super sweet and tried to help me up, but I kept slipping. <laughs> then, when I was finally able to get up, I went into the bathroom for an hour and a half and cried. <laughs> the awesome manager promised to comp all our food if I came out with my heads up. And then she writes this at the end. Update. I have now learned to put grips on all my boots. <laughs> I can't take you anywhere. All right, so, so this morning's scripture also takes place in a, a social setting. And it's not a restaurant, but um, it's a wedding. So let's hear our scripture read to us by Stacy. Our scripture this morning is from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants knew the servants knew who had drawn the water. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana, in Galilee, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so the first thing that we have to notice is why this miracle was performed. Now, because um, if we don't understand why the miracle happened, then we can make the passage pretty much say whatever we want it to say. And as an aside, this is an important clue uh, when reading Scripture. Always look for the reason that the Scripture is there. Always look for the reason why this particular passage is included in the Bible. Sometimes... Uh, it's not that clear. Uh, sometimes you have to look hard. Sometimes you have to really dig. But here in this passage, John actually outlines exactly why Jesus did this miracle. And it's here in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So here in this little verse, we see three reasons why Jesus did this miracle. First, it was a sign. It was a, it was a clue. It was a signpost. It was the start of a trail of breadcrumbs. And if people chose to follow the clues, then they would come to the second reason, which is that Jesus was revealing his glory. And the third reason is so that, the, so that people, in this case, his, uh, disciples would would believe in him. It was a sign to reveal his glory so that people would believe in him. And here we see some sort of a, a blueprint of the methodology modus operandi that Jesus uses over and over again in the Gospels. He, he leaves a sign, he leaves a clue that reveals his glory so that people would believe in him. Nowadays, I think that sometimes we can be so fixated on the belief part, on the third part, uh, you know, we, we would say to people, you just have to believe. You just have to believe. You, you know, you just have to trust. But Jesus usually starts with giving people a reason to trust him, right? Faith isn't built on thin air. Faith needs a foundation of truth and of scripture, but it also needs a foundation um, of, of reason and experience, which is why our testimonies, our Jesus stories, like what we heard at the beginning from Kelsey, why they are so important. Because as you tell your Jesus story to me, my faith uh, in the possibility of what God is able to do in my life then increases. You can grow faith in me and I can grow faith in you. And in John chapter 2, Jesus' glory is revealed uh, in the story of the miraculous creation of wine. And trust is then built in the lives of the people who see this miracle with the eyes of faith. Amen. Amen. I remember my uh, wedding day. Okay, we had the wedding here in 
Cornerstone uh, in April the t- on April the 10th, 2004. Pastor Craig uh, married us. It was a lovely ceremony. And Wendy and I actually led worship, which was awesome because we wanted to start our wedding by making it all about him. And anyway, after the wedding, so Wendy was like leading worship in her white wedding dress. I've never seen that before, but it's... Uh, Made me love her even more. And, uh, and then after the wedding, we went over to Strathmere, uh, and where the reception was. Um, and I remember the photographer, the wedding photographer taking us around to all the wedding place photo locations and we'd pose and we'd smile and it was great. And, uh, but what I remember at the end of the day is that my facial muscles were exhausted from smiling that much. And then when we finally took off at the end of the evening after the reception, I was wiped. We were both really tired. Now, that was one one day, the one afternoon. Now, imagine that going on for seven days. One week of that. Okay, I think you're free. your face literally would freeze uh, in that, it, 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 you know, in that way, in that shape. But but that's mostly how, that's most likely how long this wedding took place in John chapter two, seven days. And then at some point in the wedding celebration, uh, which probably or may well have included the whole of the village, the wine starts to run out, which is a massive social embarrassment. And so Jesus is there with his mum and with his new group of disciples. Um, now, Actually, not all of them, because at this point, Jesus has only caused, called a few of them. Uh, they aren't there in, in full strength yet. And those who he has called, they don't really know who he is yet. All he is to them is this interesting sort of a rabbi uh, who has something about him that draws people to him. Uh, but they don't yet know that he's the son of God. They don't yet know that he's the Messiah. Um He's not, and, and really, he's not even a proper rabbi, because up until recently, he was working as a carpenter or working as a stonemason. So he's not a stereotypical rabbi, but still, uh, they are there with him. And the moment that folks realized that uh, there was something special about him was when he was in the Jordan River and this guy, John the Baptist, he baptized him, and then this, then the heavens were ripped open as we learned about last week, and a dove came down, and a voice came from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. Okay, that's the moment when people started to realize that maybe there was something else about this uh, man. And But then straight after that, this man, this rabbi, heads off into the desert. He's there for a month and a half. He's there for 40 days, and then he's, he's just come back out of the desert, out of the wilderness, and uh, now he's calling people to be his apprentices, his mentees, his uh, disciples. And so in the midst of this seven-day celebration, these, these brand-new followers of Jesus are starting to realize that he's not like the other rabbis, that he's the one who hangs out with regular folks, he who... who um, who has a laugh, who has a story. You know, he's not like the other rabbis. And then maybe, I don't know, it's not there in Scripture, but maybe in the middle of a joke or in the middle of a story, uh, Rabbi Jesus' mum walks up to him quietly, she whispers something in his ear, and then Jesus quietly slides off, and no one pays it much mind. 
But what's happened in that moment is that, is that Mary, Rabbi Jesus' mum, has just said to him, they have no more wine. Now, I love this. Because Mary is not asking Jesus anything, right? This is not in the form of a question. She's just stating the facts. They have no more wine. And so often, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, prayer is me listing off a, pr- a list of requests. Here's what I need. Would you do this? Would you work in this way? Would you act here, Jesus? Would you do this, please? Over and over again. But here we see a conversation between a savior and his mum, and she simply tells him the facts, and then she leaves it to him. Now, I wonder, what would that look like if we tried that in our prayer life sometimes? Not just to ask Jesus to do such and such, but simply to tell him what's on our mind and to trust that Jesus, who's been God for a long time, is smart enough to fill in the gaps and to create a solution that brings him glory and increases our faith. You know, do like is it a requirement that we always have to tell Jesus how to paint by numbers? Or can we sometimes just give him a blank sheet of paper and say, Lord, you do whatever you want to here? Have we got the trust that he's artist enough to paint something amazing in our lives? So I imagine that Jesus and Mary are around a corner in some sort of a little nook or an alleyway or a room. This is a private conversation. It's for their ears only. But Mary obviously has got wind of this impending social catastrophe. And Jesus hears her prayer. And he says to her, woman, why do you involve me? Now, in English, this sounds super rude right? No one says woman to their wife or mother without expecting a slap in return, right? But Jesus isn't actually being rude here because this word woman that he uses here is the same woman, the same word that he addresses Mary with on the cross when, when, uh, in John chapter 19, where it says, Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. And he said to her, okay, just imagine Jesus on the cross. I bet he's not like, woman, you know, right? Okay, so that's, so that's not the sense in which we read it. Uh, but he says, woman, here is your son. And he says to John, uh, here is your mother. Okay, so woman is actually a term of love or endearment of respect. And then, but he then says to her, why do you involve me? Woman, why do you involve me? My hour, my hour has not yet come. Again, rude much. You know, Jesus, this is your first miracle. It's your first opportunity to do something. And you seem to be putting roadblocks in the way. And I, I would imagine that if Jesus asks me this and I'm Mary, I would say, well, Jesus, because you're, I think you're the son of God. I think you're the Messiah and you can do like miracles and magic and stuff. And these people need wine. So, you know, It's not rocket science. But here's the moment where we start to get a sense of Jesus' priorities in his life, of his trajectory, of his strategy for the next three years. Because he says, my hour has not yet come, meaning that it's not yet time. But time for what? His hour has not yet come for what? 
Now, there are two ways, maybe more, but there are two ways that we could understand this. Jesus could be referring to the hour that he later on prays in John chapter 17, just before his final journey to the cross starts, where he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Okay, this is a good way to understand the hour the hour of being glorified through the crucifixion, the hour for which Jesus was born, you know, the point to which his whole life was heading. But there's another way to understand hour, because the second way of understanding hour might be this. The hour of starting his public ministry hasn't yet started. He, because he didn't even have his full group of the people that would be surrounding him for the next three years. And so the reality is, however we understand this, is that we see in this moment that Jesus had various priorities for his three years of ministry here on earth. And probably his biggest um, uh, priority was to train up a cohort of 12 or more disciples and a larger group of 72 disciples to be ready to carry on his work after he died and rose again when the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. That was Jesus's number one priority. And the thing is, is that as soon as Jesus went public with the fact that he was that guy who could do miracles, then his focus would then be split. He would then have to multitask because he knew that the crowds would be drawn to him. Now, that's not to say that he doesn't he didn't love the crowds. Of course he did. But Jesus had to prioritize his time because he was only human. And he only had three years of six days a week to invest in this motley crew. In other words, he had very limited time to finish the project for which he came. So Jesus was being very strategic about how and how fast he revealed himself because of these priorities. And actually, this becomes a feature of Jesus' ministry, like, you know, the times he would actively avoid the crowds so that he could do the deep work of mentoring his his group of disciples, right? There's that moment in Mark 6 where... Um, the disciples have returned from this amazing ministry outreach work and they're exhausted. And so Jesus takes them on a boat in order to retreat and to recover. Um, this is Jesus's priority for, for that time. But the crowd who loves the miracles see them set sail and they run around the lake, meet them on the other side. And, uh, and this training, this one-on-one -on -one mentoring that, that the rabbi wants to happen can't happen because of the miracle-seeking crowds. Which is why Jesus says, my, my hour has not yet come. So whether Jesus uses the word hour to refer to the crucifixion or the start of his public ministry, it seems that Jesus is clearly saying to mum, not yet, not yet. Now, we don't know and uh, scripture doesn't tell us how Mary responds to Jesus. But the next words recorded in John chapter 2 is Mary saying to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now when I hear this, I hear Mary being a cheeky mum, right? Jesus has just said not now and then Mary turns to the servants and says, he's going to do it anyways because I'm his mummy, so do whatever he tells you. Because he's going to do whatever I tell him, right? 
But I don't think this is the way to read this line. I think this is actually Mary submitting herself to her son. This is Mary laying down her agenda and saying to Jesus, okay, not my will but yours. Which is why she then says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She left it up to Jesus whether to engage in this situation or not. And it really could have gone either way, right? Jesus could have left well enough alone and he'd have had great reasons to. He could have slid out with, you know, the rest of the disciples and headed elsewhere, right? That was an option. Magicking wedding wine. Is that really how the Messiah wants to out himself? Shouldn't it be healing someone or maybe casting out a demon? What about calling down fire from heaven or, or sending an angel army against the armies of Rome? Wedding wine seems to be a bit of a waste, right? But Jesus goes ahead and he does it. This is how Jesus starts his public ministry. And it's through this miracle that Jesus starts to publicly but quietly identify himself as someone worth watching. Now, I say publicly but quietly because the group of people who knew that the miracle had even happened was still a small group. From what John says, it was just the servants and the disciples. No one else knew. But for those who did know, who, were, who uh, had the chance to look in behind the curtain, this was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, there's a lot I haven't said about the passage. I haven't talked about the symbolism of the wine and how it foreshadows the blood of the cross and the wine of the Lord's Supper. I haven't talked about how this took place on the third day, which um, mirrors you know, the fact that Jesus rose again on the third day. And I haven't talked about how this sign was given at a wedding feast and how we are encouraged to look ahead to the consummation of the ages as a wedding feast in between the church as the bride and Jesus as the bridegroom. I haven't talked about any of this, but it's there in the passage. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a miracle and a parable and a prophecy all rolled into one if you choose to look at it, if you choose to see it with the eyes of faith. So feel free to do your own research on this. But this morning, I want to leave you and I want to leave me with a, with a question. When it comes to Jesus, do you say to him... I can't take you anywhere. Or do you say to him, please come with me everywhere. I can't go anywhere without you. You see, Jesus that we see here in the wedding of Cana is the Jesus who wants to be involved in your everyday. His first miracle is turning water into wine. This seems so so frivolous. This seems like a waste of his powers, but it's not because this is a savior. This is a, a Messiah who entered into the stuff of life of a young couple who were getting married and he wanted them to start off their wedding on the right foot. Jesus was willing to adjust his schedule of revealing himself as the Messiah so that this anonymous, unnamed couple in the Middle East could face their community 
with pride and with respect the next morning and not with shame. He did this so that they would not go through their lives marred as the couple who ran out of wine at their wedding. Hey, uh, remember Leah and Asher's wedding? Oh my God, what a catastrophe. How could that even have happened? They would have been known like that for their whole lives. And so what this means is that Jesus is so interested in the stuff of your life right now. He's there and all that you need to do is to come to Jesus and say, like Mary said, Jesus, I've run out. And I wonder this morning, what have you run out of? I've run out of money. I've run out of resources. I've run out of patience. I've run out of caring. I've run out of love. I've run out of faith. I've run out. If this is you, then you can come to Jesus and simply tell him the obvious. I've run out. And you can come to Jesus on behalf of others and simply tell him the obvious. Lord, they've run out. Friends, we can pray to Jesus like this. A short, simple prayer that states the obvious. And what the miracle of the wine and the water and the wedding shows us is that Jesus cares and he listens. And he's willing to go out of his way and to adjust his schedule, if you can imagine that, to respond to your prayer. And friends, after we've prayed, we can then say to ourselves and him, I will do whatever you tell me. Sometimes faith involves doing what doesn't make sense. After all, the servants brought wine, the, the wine up to the MC, or sorry, they brought water up to the MC and he tasted wine. But when we live lives of simple faith of stating our requests, Jesus, I've run out and responding in obedience, I will do whatever you tell me. Then we're opening ourselves up to the miraculous. And it might not be 30 gallons of wine, but it will be what we need because Jesus knows what you need. And so I encourage you this morning not to say to Jesus, I can't take you anywhere, but instead to say to him, would you come with me everywhere? I can't go anywhere without you. Would you come to my wedding? Would you come to my workplace? Would you come to my grocery store, to my, to my parents' care home? Would you come to my new house? Come with me everywhere. Would you come to my empty house? Would you come to my Zoom meeting? Would you come to the dark places in my mind? Would you come to my walk in the woods, to my doctor's office? Would you come to my depression? Would you come to my vacation plans, Jesus? Would you come with me to my isolation and my loneliness? Come with me everywhere. Take Jesus everywhere. Because, friends, if Jesus was at home in a wedding, he's at home with you wherever you choose to bring him. Amen? And if Jesus is there, and if you're bringing your request simply stated, Jesus, I've run out. And if you're responding in simple obedience, I will do whatever you tell me then you can expect to see signs that reveal his glory that cause you to believe in him. 
so take him everywhere. And as we sing this last song, I would encourage you to either feel free to join in and to sing, or feel free to simply take this time to pray your one-sentence prayer, Jesus, I've run out of whatever it is. And after the song, if you're still around and you want prayer, then, uh, then I will be here and uh, I would love to pray with you.